0: lesson this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy scripture. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscious, conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no, <clears throat> and no better off if we do. But take care, dear ones, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not, not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat offered, food offered to idols? Inspired Word of our God.
1: Good morning, everybody. Um, let's begin with the Word of Prayer. Uh, Father, um, just I, I love Psalm two and the fact we got to read it together. Um, the the threat of His wrath is quickly raised, and the promise of kiss the Son. While, he, while he's available Lord what a, a glorious time for us to live in that that the threat is real and it's coming but there is the hope and and it's still time to be reconciled so would you reconcile many people today would you draw many to yourself save many people we pray in Christ's name for his glory and father we want to pray for our sister Claudia Ruiz um, who's recently had surgery and between the the um, uh, painkillers and the the pain itself and, and the surgery, Lord, um, we just pray that you would be with her in, those, in the, the haze of it all, in the pain of it all, and, and Father, would you heal her and, uh, and knit together what has been torn apart and help her to be better when she's done with this. And so have mercy on Claudia, and we pray for the Ruiz family that they would be um, encouraged as uh, they're taking care of Claudia, who is such a servant to them. Um, a t- an opportunity to serve back. And so would you bless that family with uh, healing and just the knowledge that they can love and serve each other like that. It's, it's a very Christ-like thing to do. Um, and Lord, now we ask that you be with us in this study of your word as we turn to uh, what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds to see and to receive your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, our Declaration of Independence uh, has a wonderful phrase in it, a wonderful sentence in it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think it's a wonderful statement of just basic human rights. And um, the, the thing that is really interesting is that is not what Thomas Jefferson originally wrote. He wrote something different, and so in June of 1776, he sent a copy of the Declaration to Benjamin Franklin and asked if he would do uh, any adjustments or, you know, suggestions or just kind of his review. And uh, Franklin didn't do much. He he made very few notes on it, but one thing that he did do is he changed that sentence. Instead of, we hold these truths to be self-evident, what Thomas Jefferson had written was, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And so Franklin scratched that out and put self-evident instead. And what I think that sh- signifies, what I think that shows is this was a f- big step into the modern world. It was reason now trumps religion. It's not sacred, it's self-evident. Um, there's a book on the Trinity Reads table called Remaking the World by Andrew Wilson. And he's the one that brought my attention to this. And I love his, his kind of summary of what's going on here. Listen to what he has to say. He says. Jefferson's version, despite his theological skepticism, presented the equality of men and their rights and the rights they held as grounded in religion. They were undeniable because they were sacred, sacred truths that originated from the creator. By contrast, Franklin's version grounded them in reason. They are self-evident truths. which which are not dependent on any particular religious tradition, but can be easily grasped as logically necessary by anyone who thinks about them long enough. And and where where Andrew goes, or where Wilson goes in that book, as he reflects on that, is he he asks the question, why did Ben Franklin think that these truths were self-evident? Because, think about it, they had to write a letter to a king who did not hold those truths as self-evident, and they had to tell him that these truths are self-evident, and that we're claiming those truths. So it, it's not self-evident, and when you look around the world today, a good portion of the world would, would have no idea what that meant, that these are self-evident. That's not true. We don't have individual rights like that. Where, where does that come from? So Franklin assumes that self-evident, that it's just everybody knows that, that, that you must have understood it that way. And so where where Andrew goes uh, in that book is he asked the question, why? Why would they assume that it is that way? Because if you go back in time in the West, if you go back to say the Roman Empire, they were not self-evident truths. You didn't have rights. The king or those powerful could could kill you in an instant. They could deny you liberty. They could enslave you. It didn't, you didn't have those kind of rights. And so it hasn't always been self-evident. But what he says is he makes the point that it it is self-evident to us in the West today in this modern world because something changed. And so that thing that changed is he quoted a philosopher, a sociologist, and a a historian. Larry Sidentop, Tom Holland, and Charles Taylor, who said what changed the West so thoroughly that we would just assume we have rights is Christianity. Christian ethics changed the West so fundamentally we just assume that this is the way it is. It's, it's pretty amazing. And so, when you think about it, where do we get the idea that we have rights? If, if we don't have it grounded in something beyond um, self-evidence, then it's just opinion. In my opinion, you have rights. But if it's grounded in something more, then, then they are unalienable. And it's because their creator endowed them. Now, they mentioned the creator and, and you've got to be careful here that the way that especially Franklin and Jefferson understood the creator is the Creator wound up creation, got it going, and then walked away. He's a deist. He's not involved. You, you don't pray to him. He's, he's got nothing to do with us. Evolution hadn't come along and told them, oh, this is how it all just started one day when, when nothing happened, and then it blew up. Um, they they didn't, hadn't gotten that far yet, so they still had to have a Creator. So these truths, they claim, are self-evident. And what they're denying is that it is rooted in any one particular religion. It is rooted in Christianity. It was so foreign that anybody would have any idea of rights, that that would blow somebody's mind to say you have rights because of who you are, because you're a human being. That was thoroughly Christian idea, and so the, the West now, as it moves away from Christianity, is still kind of stealing from us, and, and that's okay. <laughs> I prefer their, their inconsistency. So what's that got to do with food sacrifice to idols? Well, what, what's going on in this next section? So we just finished chapters seven, uh, 5 through 7, where Paul is talking about human sexual ethics, human sexuality and those kinds of things, marriage, singleness, all of that. And then here it's just like an abrupt change of topic. Now concerning food offered to idols. You know, didn't even turn his turn signal on, just changed lanes right in front of me. Where he's going to go with this is, is chapters 8 through half of about half of 11, is he's going to be talking about idols, idolatry, food offered to idols, and that's kind of the material cause of the discussion, but it's not the root, it's not what is underneath that. And, and what I mean by that is, since the rise of Christianity and Islam through the world, idolatry is almost gone. I mean, it just is, has vanished because these world religions have kind of taken over, so is, does this still matter to us that we're talking about food sacrifice to idols? Well, think about Paul, right? Paul's in Athens and he sees all these temples set up and he goes, you're really religious people, let me tell you the truth. He intended to get rid of the idols. So when he writes this and the Holy Spirit inspires it and it's, it's inscripturated and it's given to us today, this still matters. This is still important that, that we discuss idols. Um, but what's underneath that is something more important. And what Paul is going to start off with is the idea of rights. He's going to mention it here. Chapter 9 is about his rights, the rights that he has as an apostle. And it's going to kind of flow through that. So we're going to have these two parallel things going on, Id- idols and idolatry and rights. And, and it's, it's so subtle, you don't even notice it because the, the overarching topic is I- idolatry. And so that's where we're going to go with this. This is where it's, what's going to happen. He starts off with a statement, now concerning food offered to idols. Apparently, this was something that the Corinthians had asked him about. This was another one of those issues that they were struggling with. What do we do about that? Can we eat that food or do we have to scorn it or what do we do? So he starts by stating the, the, um, the uh, problem that they're asking and then he goes on a tangent. <laughs> do you notice that? And then he comes back in verse four. Oh, there, by the way, food offered to idols. So the tangent is, he says, we all we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know, but if anyone know, loves God, he is known by God. So immediately he takes this kind of tangent because what he's going to do is he's he's using idolatry as just kind of a side issue. It's going to be what he's going to use to talk about it. What he has to get in place first is this idea of knowledge. And so this knowledge, he says, knowledge puffs up. Um, when something is puffed up, what's inside it? Nothing. Air. Just poof. There is a form of knowledge, there is a way to know doctrine, to know theology, to know it truthfully and accurately, and just be full of hot air. Because if you have the right theology and you don't have love, then you've, you've wasted it. You have, you have fallen in love with the theology instead of what the theology is supposed to lead you to. Theology or doctrine is essential. We can't know God without it. It is not sufficient. It's not enough. You have to know who God is. You have to understand who he is, and you have to love him for that. And so that's why he says this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It fills in that empty void with something substantial and something real, and it's love. And that's what theology, well done, properly handled, should do is lead us to love, to love God first and foremost and love our neighbor as ourself. And and, and that's the proper application of all theology, in my opinion. Um, I did a, a class called Six Essential Christian Truths. We went through just kind of six broad topics. And at the end of every class, we sang a hymn. Because in my opinion, when you study this doctrine, the way it should resolve, the way it should kind of come together in your heart is worship. It should just move you to say, oh my gosh, Lord, you are so wonderful. And so that's where, that's where proper theology should go. So Paul wants to set this up. We're going to talk about a highly contentious issue in their day food sacrifice to idols. Before we even get there, you have to understand something. You have knowledge, you understand the issue of idolatry, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. So that's why he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. How do you know that you know God? How do you know that you've been saved? Because one of the first fruits is a love for God, not a proper theology. Your theology can be a little bit off. When I got saved, I came to know the Lord. I was reading the scriptures. I was, I was excited by who he was. And it was I maybe two or three weeks later, I came across a footnote in a, Bible, in a study Bible that said Jesus was God. I had no idea. That was wonderful. Isn't that incredible? So I didn't deny it. I just didn't know it. I, I, what I was filled with originally by the power of the Holy Spirit through the, the process of his conversion is a love for God. So as that theology came in, it was, it was building up that love and going. oh my gosh, this is wonderful. I, I just think that's the way it should be. So Paul wants to frame our, our thoughts before we get into this question of food offered to idols. You have to have love. You better have theology because if you don't have theology, you might be loving the wrong things, but you got to have love and a love for God, and that's how you know you're known by God. So then he says, he returns to his topic. He comes back to what he was saying, therefore... Um, since I just kind of went over the, uh, the interruption, let's, let's go back to this. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no exi- real existence and there is no God but one. So before we even discuss, is it okay to eat food to idols, he's going to address, what is an idol? Nothing. It has no existence in the world. It, it, is, it doesn't have a, a place in the world. So when you see this carved image coated in in silver or gold, it, it, there's no power there. It's just a thing. It, it doesn't have any kind of real presence. There's no spiritual power behind it because it's just a block of wood. It, it's not real, and so he says that they have no resi- no um, existence, no real existence in the world. Why? Because there's only one God. There is only one, and so the, God has no peers. He has no competitors. He just is. So when we see these idols and they're being worshipped and adored, they're, they're not another god that's being worshipped and adored. We'll come back to uh, more theology of what idols are. We'll come back to that later. But for right now, he's just saying, there's no power here. There's nothing going on. So when we went on a, a short-term missions trip to Burma, um, in uh, the town we were in, there is the, the big huge Buddhist temple called the Shui De Gong. It's giant and it is coated from top to bottom in gold. It's just incredible. And scattered throughout it are all these different Buddhist idols. And we came through and we saw one lady pouring milk on one that was shaped like a, um, an elephant. And, and what we have to remember is that is not a god sitting there. This poor woman is enslaved to an image, but th- that is no real god. It's no competitor to the real and true god. That's why we went there is to tell them about the real and true god. So then he says in verse 5, for although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things, um, let me stop there, yet for us there is one God, the Father. So when he looks around, remember Paul has been to Athens, he saw all the objects of their worship. Um, Idolatry in that day was prolific. It was just everywhere, it was what you did And he says, when he looks around, he goes, there are many gods, there are many, numerous things that people call gods, and there are numerous lords, these, these other beings that are supposed to have some sort of supernatural or wonderful power, but he goes, for us, there is one God. Now, this is not the relativistic, well, this is your truth, and if that works for you, that there's one God, that's nice. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, we know that there is one God. So when we look around the world and we see these other competing idols and these other images and these other things trying to vie for God's position, we know that there is only one God. We would never say that there are competing gods here. That's that's not what we're seeing. There is one God who is the Father. This is our faith. The Nicene Creed begins, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That is a confession of our faith. Now, does this mean that only God, only the Father is God, that the Son is something else? Well, no, the Nicene Creed echoed this, and the Nicene Creed is where it really defined, it really put together the idea, the, the terminology that we would use, not the idea, but the terminology we would use to say that Jesus is fully God. So it's not denying the, the Godhood of Jesus, it's simply saying there is one God, the Father through, or for whom, or I'm sorry, the Father, from whom all things exist, and the Son, through whom all things exist. This is one God acting to make creation, and so that's one of the things I think is wonderful about the first chapter of Genesis, is when when Moses is going through the first chapter of Genesis, God just says, "Let there be light," and there is. He says, "Let there be stars in the heavens," and there are. He says, let the brighter, the brighter light do this and the lesser light. He doesn't even bother to name them. Those are God's names in the, in the pagan world. And he just announces them. So what I think Moses is showing them is whatever God you have, the God of the harvest or the God of the field or the God who is a form of a bull or the God of the heavens or the God of the stars or, or the sun or the moon, whatever, they're not real gods. God just spoke them into existence. He is supreme over all. He is the God of heavens and earth. And I think that's what Paul is echoing here is this idea that there is one God and whatever idol claims to be the, the God of something, that's because God made it, not because the idol did. So he's superior over all of those things. There's, there's nothing that exists except for our true and our one and our true God. So this is his introduction to what an idol is. Nothing. It's, it's a chunk of wood. Um, so what does this have to do with us today? If, like I said, most idols are gone throughout the world, especially in the Western world, what does this have to do with us? Well, one thing is this section is not about idols. It's about food offered to idols. And in chapter 10, Paul is going say to say twice. He says, don't become idolaters. In verse 7 and then in verse 14 he says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So I think when we get to chapter 10, that's when we need to discuss what are idols, what is idolatry, what does idolatry for us today look like. Instead, what we need to focus on here is something a little different. It, it, the question that he raised at the beginning was not what is an idol, but is it okay to eat food offered to an idol? and That's the real question. That's, that's the thing that we need to focus on, and so let's go back to that. Let's focus on that question until we get to chapter 10. So. How does this apply for us? Remember the little diversion at the beginning? You have knowledge. If you don't have love, you're nothing. That's the problem. That's the issue. So in verse 7 he says, however, not all this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So his point is, you strong people, that's us, we're all strong, right? We don't have any weak Christians here all us strong people, we're going, it doesn't matter, it's, it, I don't care where the meat came from, it's just, it's good quality meat, let's eat it. But the weak ones are, are troubled by that, and it really troubles them, and what Paul is telling us to do is be aware of that weaker brother, beware of that weak conscience, and don't trample on it. Not all possess this knowledge. So like I said, you know, I, when I became a believer, I was a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe I was really born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that Jesus was God, It took a little bit. Not all possess this knowledge right away. That's not how human beings learn. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ and you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are not filled with all the doctrine that you need to know. That's not how human brains work. We have to learn it. We have to experience it. We have to go through it. And so not all have this knowledge. And even if they have the knowledge, even if, if they could say the confession, there is one God in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if they can announce that, that doesn't mean it's sunk into their heart yet. And that's why he says, but some through former association with idols, they spent their entire life in a culture saturated by idol worship. They, they couldn't imagine anything, making any plans, trying to do anything. I, I hope to start a business. I better go offer a sa- uh, sacrifice to this particular idol, the God of business. I want to start a family. I'm gonna go hit Aphrodite's temple and and make an offering there. That was just how the world worked for them. Those truths to them were self-evident. That's just the assumption. So when they become believers, now they've become Christians and they say I'm not gonna have anything to do with those anymore. Their their minds are there but their heart hasn't caught up. When they see that idol in the temple, they're still troubled by it. It still scares them. There's, There's still a power behind that thing to them as they experience that. And so he says, um, not all have this knowledge, some through former association, when they eat food that's been offered to an idol, they think it's real. They still experience it as real, even though they would, they would if you ask them, they would say, yeah, there's only one God, but, but the feeling, the experience, the, the, the problem is, when I eat this, am I worshipping Aphrodite, am I worshipping uh, Aries, what am I doing here? Is this for real or is this not? And so they're troubled by that. So he's he's reminding us strong Christians, those of us who don't have a problem with these things, who know, you know, it's not not a big deal. You have to be aware that there are brothers and sisters in Christ for whom it is a big deal. Pay attention to that. And don't defile their their conscience. So verse 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, nor better off if we do. It's not about food that you could you could skip it and it wouldn't be a problem. As a matter of fact, when in Romans 14 when Paul is discussing fasting, in Romans 14 the question was, which day should we fast? Like it matters? See, so you're being a strong Christian if that was your response. Good job. He's asking which day should we fast on? And this is his response. He says for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter if you eat or if you don't eat. That's not the point. The kingdom of God is the Holy Spirit residing in you. So food is an indifferent thing. We can eat, we cannot eat. You could be vegetarian, you could be vegan, you could be carnivore, you could be meat eater, whatever that is, where all you eat is meat. That's okay. That's immaterial. That, that's an indifferent thing. Don't let that worry you. Why? Because what the kingdom of God is, is the power of the Holy Spirit. And even Jesus taught us on this. He said a similar thing in Mark chapter 7. He said to them, then are you without understanding? Do you not see what, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his t- stomach as is expelled? Therefore, he declared all food clean. The question there was, can you eat can you, why don't you wash your hands when you come back from the market? There are dirty pagans at the market, and you have to wash. He's like, you don't understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you bad. It's what comes out of your mouth. So food is not what the issue is here. He says, food will not commend us. It's not something that we need to worry about. So you strong Christians, you're eating. That's great. Don't think that you have to eat because this is my liberty. I'm free in Christ to do this. Therefore, I have my rights and I'm going to do it. That's not what's going on. Food will not commend you to God. Abstaining from food will not commend you to God. Don't worry about that. Verse 9, he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is where I said the, the issue at heart here is not the food. It's not the idol. It's the right. You have a right to eat. Why do I have a right to eat? Where did that come from? Because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus made it clean for you. Because Jesus saved you. You have a right to eat this food or not. It's, it's fine. It, it's, not what, uh, it's not the law. It says, but make sure you, you don't take this right of yours and somehow make it a stumbling block to the weak. He's not arguing about, can you eat that food? That's fine. If it's been offered to an idol, that's OK. Don't worry about it. What you do need to worry about, though, is what about your brother? What about your sister in Christ? If they grew up in a pagan temple and that is something that is so ingrained into them that it would really set them off, then don't eat it in front of them. Be cautious, be careful. In other words, you have the knowledge, now fill it with love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. That's what you need to do. That's how this is gonna work. This is why we have rights, is not so that we can do whatever the heck we want. We have rights so that we can live fully in Christ and take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the, that's the Christian law, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's why you have these rights to do those things. Our liberty in Christ can't be flouted in the face of the neighbor saying, oh, come on, man, this is okay, It's no big deal. Verses 10 and 11, he says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So if anyone sees you actually in the temple sitting down and eating, that was a possibility. It's hard for us to conceive of this because our secular world is so divided into things. There's a restaurant. And what do you do at a restaurant? You eat at a restaurant. And that's it. Unless you go to like a restaurant theater or something and then you might see a play or something. But generally speaking, you go to a restaurant to eat what was going on in these temples was they would bring the food in like meat and they would divide it into three parts. And one part would be given to the priests, another part would be burned to the God, and then the third part would be cooked and they would sit down and they would have a meal. It was like eating in a restaurant, being in this temple. If you wanted the best meat, you wanted the best food, you went to these ta- temples and you sat down, you had you had dinner there. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our head around that because that should be so foreign that that you would go to a, play, a temple and eat. Um, but he says, if someone sees you in there, a weaker brother, somebody who has just come to faith, maybe, and, and they're still troubled by the the pagan past that they had, how fully and deeply they they worshipped these idols, and now they've been set free, and they see you in there. He puts it in really strong terms: the weak person is destroyed. You have destroyed. Do you want to do that? Do you want to re- destroy the weaker brother? That's what you're doing. Why? Because what they see is somebody eating and drinking and they think that I should do that even though it troubles me. I should be like that. Be, I'm not ready for it, but I should be. And so he says, you're destroying them. And here's the thing. This is the brother for whom Christ died. What tremendous payment was made for that person that Jesus Christ would die for them to win them to himself. And you're going to trample on that. You're going you're to exert your, your liberty over that and say, no, I, I can do whatever I want. Well, yeah, you can. Should you? Probably not. You should be thinking about these other people. And we have an example in this. We have something that is given to us so that we can have that attitude to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Philippians 2, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. You can have this mind. Here's here's what mind you should have. This mind, which is yours in Christ, who... Though he existed in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Did Jesus Christ have rights? He was the eternally begotten Son of God, added to himself human nature and came to earth. Did he have rights? He had the right to demand worship from everybody. He had the right to, to command the nations lest they, you know, kiss the sun lest he be angry, right? He had the rights to do those things and he set those rights aside. Why did he set those rights aside? He said, because I want something better. I want, I've come to, to lay down my life, die on a cross and win people to myself. So even in the example of Jesus, we're being told, look, don't forget that Jesus did this. He set this example for you. And so when you look at that weaker brother or sister, when you see them, you're thinking, how can I be more Christ-like to them? Not, hey, I got my rights. I'm going to do what I want. That's the attitude that that Paul is trying to generate in us. That's what he's hoping to to have us embrace and and, and partake in, is being more like Jesus. So verses 12 and 13. sorry, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So do you hear that? When you eat in front of your weaker brother, you have sinned against them. Does that sound, when I read that I was like, I've sinned against my brother, but I have liberty, I have rights, I can eat this food. I can do it, do it in, you know, without a clear conscience. But if you do it in front of your brother and you wound them and you cause them to stumble and you're bringing them down to the point where they're doubting whether they understand things right and, and maybe it is okay to eat food offered to an idol thinking an idol is a real thing, you have sinned against them because you haven't put them first, you haven't loved your brother as yourself and you've wounded their conscience when it is weak. And here's the, here's the real surprising one, you sin against Christ. Why? Because Jesus died for that person. You're trampling them as if they're nothing. Now you've sinned not only against them, you've sinned against Jesus because they are in Christ. So this is where he goes with chapter 9 is he wants to make us see that we do have rights, we do have Christian liberty, but that Christian liberty, those Christian rights are bound by loving our neighbor as ourselves, bound by who God is. Because it's not like we can do anything. Remember, beginning of chapter 5, a man has his stepmother and you people are celebrating it. That's disgusting, even the pagans don't do that. So it's not like anything goes, there are certain limits, but but this is something within the bounds of it's okay. And Paul is admonishing us, don't do it if it hurts your brother. Don't do it if, if it's gonna crush somebody else. And so what he's gonna do in chapter nine is he's gonna demonstrate this in his own ministry. He's gonna say, look, don't I have rights as an apostle? But look, I'm gonna put them aside. He's gonna demonstrate for us what it means to be that. Now, at this point, I want to offer a slight caveat in here, just a a gentle um, reminder, a gentle other perspective. There can be something called the tyranny of the weak. You can have weaker brothers who delight in being weaker brothers. And the the difficulty is, is you have to look at this weaker brother and go, are they truly weak? Am am I really offending their conscience or are they just being a Pharisee? You you don't want to indulge a Pharisee. If somebody is is coming up and saying, well, I don't like the way you do that. I I don't think you should wear those shoes to church. They're not very nice looking. Um, Can I see your Pharisee club card of America, please, for a second? Um, You're going to not want to just do what they say just because they said it. But if somebody else is really troubled by that, if that really bothers them, then it takes time. It takes some relationship. You have to work with them to understand who they are. And and the other thing to remember in this tyranny of the weak is we don't run around, because I'm I'm expecting a line of people coming up to me and saying, I'm offended by you this, that you do. And I was like, so now I've got to sort it out. All right, who have I offended and who just needs to get over it? Um, We don't want to be under the spell or under the authority of the weak all the time. And we don't want to leave our brothers and sisters as weak in conscience, do we? The, The goal here is to build them up in Jesus Christ, to build them up in the faith. And so what you do is you meet them where they are, you walk with them where they are, and then you help them grow in their understanding. So that knowledge, wedded with love, being poured into this person will help them grow in Christ. You don't want to leave them as babies. So if a brother or sister is weak in something, man, I, I will never do it again. That's why he says, if, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. I will be vegetarian starting tomorrow. But... He's writing to instruct us. He's writing to tell us. And so he's coaching us. He, he wants them to have that knowledge that he brought up at the beginning. Idols don't matter. They're not real. And so he's, he's trying to bring them up. So this, this the, the one side is the tyranny of the strong, where we're just going to step all over everybody and do what we want, because I have rights. And then the other one is the tyranny of the weak, where they're going to be quibbling over every little thing. And, and the reality is somewhere between those, we have to help the weak become strong through our own through our own humility, through our own setting our rights aside for their benefit um, and and not live under their rule or their thumb, but not stepping on them either. And so this is how Paul begins this discussion. Like I said, this is going to go through 8 through pretty much chapter 11. He's going to be talking about the necessity of love. And I I think that 13, chapter 13, really fits into this because he's going to extol love. And he says, I can work miracles and if I don't have love, it's nothing. I can I can be uh, uh, understand all prophecy, and if I don't have love, it's nothing. So I, that's where he's going with that. That's where it's going. But for this first part, anyway, he's going to discuss love under the rubric, under the, the the banner of idol worship, of of eating in idols' temples and that kind of thing. So I think it's an odd juxtaposition of those two ideas. I would not have put those two concepts together, um, but in Paul's time, in his his world. That was what was going on. is idols were a big deal. Um, now, for us today, I'll just kind of give you a little hint for what Chapter Ten is going to look like. Our idols are just much more sophisticated, but they haven't gone away. <laughs> the, the the human heart just is going to worship something, and so we'll we'll get there in Chapter Ten. So, with that, let's let's close in uh, in prayer, and um, and I'm looking forward to to digging more into this. There's much more to be said. We haven't got there yet. Um, we just walked with Paul setting it up. Lord, I, I pray that um, you would give us all wisdom and insight and love for Jesus Christ, our God, the Father, our God, and for our neighbors for whom Jesus died, that we would care for them, that we would be interested in their benefit, in their building up and them becoming more and, and growing in Christ. And Lord, help us to not do it in a, in a heavy handed, clumsy way where we wound people. But Lord, may we do it with love. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us with love so that as we experience the freedom that we have in Christ, as we live with that, that it is not wounding to those around us, but building them up. Because that's our goal, is to build everybody up in Christ, to make them more Je- like Jesus every day. And Lord, that's only possible through your, your your work in the Holy Spirit in us, through the relationships that we have, through the 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 ordinances that you've given us to experience through all of these things, Lord, you bring it together, and so help us to do it well, we pray. In Christ's name, I ask this. Amen.